Our passage for this morning brings much of the action of the book of Genesis to a close. So Lord willing, we'll have one more sermon in uh, two weeks to tie up some loose ends. Um, but in many ways, the plot line of Genesis, how God creates the world, uh, chooses for himself a people for his own possession, and how those people, the family of Abraham, wind up in Egypt. That, that storyline that really uh, represents the storyline of the book of Genesis, in many ways, by the end of our passage, is, is told. And, and in the chapters we have uh, under consideration this morning, chapter 48, chapter 49, and the beginning of chapter 50, we see really three things happening. In chapter 48, we see Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandchildren. In chapter 49, we see Jacob blessing his 12 sons. And then at the beginning of chapter 50, we see Jacob's burial. But before we jump into those uh, stories, I'm, I'm aware that not everyone here has been here for this whole series in the book of Genesis. And a lot of the significance of these events uh, in chapters 48 to 50 uh, won't be apparent unless you know the sort of larger story. So let me just very quickly get you caught up on what has been a long sermon series up to this point. Uh, Genesis 1 to 3 describes God's creation of the world and how that world uh, descends into sin and rebellion against God when the first human beings uh, rebel against God. Uh, from chapter 3, things keep getting worse until in chapter 12, we see God calls a man named Abram later called Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. It's a covenant that God will reaffirm with Abraham in chapters 15 and 17. And in that covenant, God promises three things. First, he says that he's going to make Abraham's family into a great nation. Second, he promises to give to those descendants the land of Canaan. And then third, he promises that through Abraham and through his descendants, he says God will bless them, and through them, he is going to bless the entire world. And so to that end, God gives Abraham a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, uh, whom God will later give the name Israel. And Jacob, also known as Israel, has 12 sons. These 12 sons come to him by four different women, which, to no one's surprise, creates all kinds of drama. Some of the older brothers are jealous of their younger brother, Joseph, their father's favorite. And so they sell him into slavery, and he's taken off into Egypt. And whilst in Egypt, the Lord uh, blesses Joseph, and he basically becomes the second most powerful man in the country behind only Pharaoh himself. And then as we saw last week, the Lord used the fact that Joseph was in Egypt. We, he used Joseph's preparations and his planning to provide food for his family and for much of the surrounding world during a terrible famine. So last week we saw a family reunion of sorts where the brothers who had sold Joseph into slavery realized that really they've been dealing with their long lost brother, where Jacob found out that his beloved son Joseph wasn't really dead after all. And that brings us then to chapter 48 where we start this morning. So if you're taking notes, this will be point one for us, and that is Jacob's faith. We see here in chapter 48, uh, Jacob blessing uh, his grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh. And, and what it really is showing us is Jacob's faith. 
So I'm not going to take time to read every verse here. It may help you if you have a Bible open. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's fine. There should be one under the the chair in front of you, uh, but it'll help you to follow along. But I think we see Jacob's faith in chapter 48 in two ways, really, or in this whole passage in two ways. The first is in that story that comprises most of chapter 48, where he blesses his grandchildren. So there in verse 1, we see that Joseph is told that his father is very ill. So he takes his two oldest boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he goes to see Jacob. And we read there in verses 3 to 6. And Jacob said to Joseph, so this is a father talking to his son, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So Jacob reminds Joseph of the time back in chapter 28 where God appeared to him at Bethel, also known as Luz. If you remember there, Jacob had a dream of a great flight of stone steps stretching from the earth up into heaven with angels ascending and descending on those steps. And there God had reiterated the promises that he had made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, making it clear that the promise to Abraham would be continued through Jacob's line. And then in verse 5, Jacob does something that seems odd to us. He sort of unilaterally adopts Joseph's oldest two children, Manasseh and Ephraim, as if they were his own. He says, essentially, these two are mine now. You can keep the others. Now, if you have kids, you can imagine what would happen if your father tried to do something like this. My guess is it would create tension between your wife and the in-laws, right? Uh, Jacob comes and he says, your two oldest sons are now mine. But, but there in verse 6, he explains that the purpose of this adoption is simply to include these two boys in his inheritance. He's not adopting them in order to raise them as his own. After all, he's about to die. But rather that, so that they might be included in the line of promise, in the line of those who would inherit. In the next chapter, we'll see that Jacob is cutting his firstborn son, Reuben, out of the position of prominence in the family. In that society, it was expected that the oldest son would be the sort of leader of the next generation. And as such, he would receive twice the inheritance of his brothers. But we'll see again in chapter 49 that Reuben is out. And so what Jacob is doing here essentially is putting Joseph, his favorite, the savior of the family, into Reuben's place. He's essentially giving Reuben's double share to Joseph by giving a share to each of Joseph's oldest two sons. And so the boys are brought there to Joseph in verse 8. And we read this. When Israel, so Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. 
And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. So you get this emotional meeting. Remember, Jacob thought that his beloved son was dead. And here he is, not only seeing him face to face, but also meeting his children, Jacob's grandchildren. There in verse 11, he remarks about how kind the Lord has been to bring him to this place. It reminds you more than a little of the time when Isaac blessed Jacob. Do you remember that story? Isaac's uh, eyes were dim with age. Right? This was a time before cataract surgery. And Jacob, the younger son, took advantage of his father's blindness to steal the blessing that Isaac intended for Jacob's older brother Esau. And so this scene sort of tips you off. Here now Jacob, as an old man, himself can't see, and it's time to bless. But Joseph is a very different man than his father was when he was the same age. There's no hint of deceit here. Joseph brings his boys to Jacob for his blessing, and he, he does the right thing. He puts Ephraim, the younger one, towards Jacob's left. And he takes Manasseh, the older one, and puts him towards Jacob's right. That's because in that culture, the, the right side was the place of prominence and blessing and priority. The older son would be blessed with the right hand, the younger with the left. That's just how it was done. That was significant. But as we've learned in the book of Genesis, very few things go the way we'd expect. And here's what we read in the next section in verses 14 to 20. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the, on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He, shall al he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall become greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim. And as Manasseh, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So in blessing these boys, Jacob switches his hands. Joseph, assuming that his father's sort of blindness and old age have confused him, switches them back. But Jacob is clear that no, he intends to bless the younger son over the older. Now, what does that mean? And why on earth does that matter? We actually get some help in this from the New Testament book of Hebrews, written almost 2,000 years after these events. There in Hebrews 11, the author is reflecting on the great acts of faith that characterized the people of God in the Old Testament. 
And out of all of Jacob's incredible experiences, all of his opportunities to exercise faith, this is the one that Hebrews calls to our attention. So we read there in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. You see, there's something in this unusual blessing, this prioritizing of the younger over the older that demonstrates Jacob's faith. It's something we've already seen in the book of Genesis, right? Isaac was the second born, but he was given prominence over Ishmael, his older brother. Jacob himself, as we've mentioned, received the blessing instead of Esau. And so here Jacob is elevating Joseph, who was his youngest son for quite some time until Benjamin came along, by elevating his youngest son's younger son over the older. It seems that Jacob has been shown something. He, he speaks with prophetic confidence here that actually Ephraim, uh, opposed to what we would expect, is going to be greater than his brother. He has, it seems, by faith, realized something about the way God works, that God doesn't follow our conventions, that he brings about his salvation in surprising ways. That is to say, when God enters into human history to save and redeem his people, he almost never does it in a way that we would expect. We would expect that God would choose to use the smartest, the best, the biggest, the most important, the most glamorous, in, in that culture, the oldest, that, that he would work in ways that seem obvious to us. But God seems to almost always invert those expectations. So, for example, later on in the story in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses tells the descendants of Jacob, he says this to them, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, God's reminding the people of Israel that he didn't choose them. He didn't choose this family, this nation, because they were so great. In fact, they were the least. They were the smallest nation you could imagine. Instead, God showed love to them because he chose to love them. We see the same principle when it comes time for the choice of a king for this nation. The first king was a guy named Saul. He was tall. He was impressive. The, the Bible tells us he was the best-looking guy in all of Israel. But he was a disaster as a king. He was replaced by David, a man after God's own heart. And David, the greatest king in Israel's history, was a shepherd boy. He was a person of no account. He was a person who was consistently overlooked. But he was the one that the Lord used to create the nation of Israel and to establish its kingdom. It's just how the Lord works to bring about his salvation. He doesn't choose the obvious. He doesn't choose the person that we would choose. He doesn't work in ways that seem to make sense to us. The greatest example of this, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When God sends his son, many centuries after the events here in Genesis 48, he doesn't do it in the way that we would expect. 
The Lord Jesus was born to a peasant girl, raised in a backwater town on the fringe of the Roman Empire. He was a poor, itinerant preacher, rejected and harassed by the political and religious establishment. He was nothing like what you would expect from God's salvation. And when it came time to bring deliverance to the world, he didn't do it through some marvelous act of military genius or political maneuvering. He didn't come with some teaching that seemed obviously brilliant to the world. But he came and said things like, anyone who wants to be great should be a servant. He said things like, the first will be last, and the last are the ones who will be first. Those who mourn are the ones who are blessed because they will receive God's comfort. And ultimately, the Lord Jesus saved his people by being hung on a cross, by being murdered in the most humiliating and violent way imaginable. And on that cross, Jesus bore the punishment, the, the sin and the curse and the shame that we all carry around with us. Jesus took on himself everything that keeps us from having a relationship with God. And he rose from the dead in victory over all those things. Friends, this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in the passage that we read earlier in our service from 1 Corinthians 1. You remember we read there in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, what Jacob understood here is that God intentionally works in ways that will seem unlikely or even foolish to people who are, who, who are proud or self-reliant, those who are sure of their own wisdom. God brought about his salvation through the death of Jesus so that the wise and powerful of this world would not be able to recognize it by their own intelligence and power. Now, friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I wonder if all of this seems unlikely to you. If so, then maybe you're beginning to understand. God desires that you would be reconciled to him that you would turn away from your self-love, your sense that you're the one who ought to have command over your life. But God's not going to do that in a way that confirms you in your delusion that you know everything. If God did it that way, then finding salvation in Christ would be a matter of you being great, you being so wise, so clever, so, so great that you could figure things out. But friend, the only way to have a relationship with God. The only way to find salvation through Christ is a, a way that shows his greatness. You have to acknowledge that through his son, he has transformed weakness into power, folly into wisdom, and death into life. And for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, maybe you, like Jacob, have learned to discern the ways that the Lord works in the lives of his people. 
Because God loves to bring about his good purposes in our lives that require us, in ways that require us to trust him and to rely on him, rather than doing it in ways that seem obvious to us. It could be, friend, that God will work in your life through your strength, through your success, through you immediately getting everything that you want and never having to wait or trust or wonder what the Lord is doing. But the Bible encourages us to believe, and I think our experience teaches us, and Jacob's faith here models for us, that God is often at work in ways that are surprising to us, in ways that don't immediately seem likely or obvious. God often defies our expectations. And so when we encounter setbacks, when things don't go as expected, when broken relationships or physical weakness or personal setbacks seem to be the order of the day, brothers and sisters, we can trust that God is at work, that he's accomplishing his good plans in our lives. That brings us, I think, to our second way that we see Jacob's faith in this passage, and that is particularly in his instructions for his burial. This will be brief, but it's worth mentioning. There in verse 21, we read this. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Then if you skip down to the end of chapter 49, beginning in verse 29, Jacob says this to all of his sons as they're assembled around him. It says, Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then if you look in chapter 50, we see really the first 14 verses. I, I won't read them, but, but they record for us a long funeral procession where Jacob's wishes are carried out. Uh, Joseph asks Pharaoh for permission to bury Jacob, and it's granted. The Egyptians honor Jacob with a mourning ritual that's just shy of what they would have done for Pharaoh himself. They embalm Jacob, and they mourn him for 70 days. Then a massive company of Pharaoh's servants and his elders, all the family of Jacob with chariots and horsemen, they all head out of Egypt into the land of Canaan to bury Jacob. It's something of a foreshadowing of the Exodus, where the Israelites will leave Egypt en masse on their way to the land of Canaan. But in all of this, we see something of Jacob's faith. For him, the promises of God were real, and they were actionable. God had promised his descendants the land of Canaan, and so he doesn't want to be left in Egypt. That's not where he belongs. That's not his homeland. And so in faith, he asks to be buried with the rest of his family in Canaan. So I'm not going to say too much about that. It's actually going to get picked up, Lord willing, at the very end of Genesis when, when Joseph dies and he gives instructions for his body. But I just want to mention it because the, the burial in particular gets a lot of airtime there in chapter 50. Jacob clearly trusted that the Lord was going to bring about his promise to give the land of Canaan to his descendants. 
So that's the first thing I wanted to see this morning, Jacob's faith, his faith in, in blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, his faith in wanting to be buried in Canaan. Uh, the second thing I wanted to see uh, this morning is to see Jacob's blessing of his sons. There in, verse, or in chapter 49, having already conferred his double blessing on Joseph through Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob gathers his sons together. And if you look there in verse 1 of chapter 49, he tells his sons that he's about to tell them what shall happen to you in the days to come. So in this blessing, there is a prophetic element. Jacob is telling them things that have been revealed to him by God. And then from verses 3 to verse 27, he walks through each one of his 12 sons and he, he speaks a word of prophecy over them. And then in verse 28, we read this summary. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to them. So here in chapter 49, it's made explicit that these 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's interesting because a lot of what Jacob is about to say that we're going to consider in chapter 49 doesn't really fit our definition of a blessing. But the word has some flexibility in it, I suppose. Some receive what seems obviously to be a blessing, others uh, less so. But, but Jacob's going to tell them what's about to happen. He's going to tell them, as it were, uh, their, their future history. And as the history of Israel continues on in the Bible, we do see that each one of these sons' families become a tribe of people. And these tribes actually fulfill the words that Jacob speaks over their forefathers here. I'm going to walk through them, uh, some of them very quickly, but just so that you get a sense of each one. Uh, starting there in verse 13, we're going to begin in the middle. Uh, we read Jacob say this. He says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. That's the capital city of Phoenicia. And it does seem that as the storyline of the Bible goes on, that's exactly what happened. When the tribes of Israel divided the land, Zebulun bordered Phoenicia, and any coastal commerce had to go through their lands. There in verses 14 and 15, we read, Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. It's hard to know exactly what it is that Jacob is foreseeing here, but the tribe of Issachar was later known for its strong warriors, so that could be perhaps what's being uh, uh, referenced here. In verses 16 to 18, we read this, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. The name Dan is a play on the Hebrew word for judge, and we see here that Dan will have both positive and negative attributes. Uh, the book of Judges shows us the tribe of Dan acting in serpent-like ways often. You can look at Judges 18 if you want to see an example of that. Uh, Jacob says here at the end of that passage, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. There are times, particularly in the book of Judges, where it seems like uh, a savior of sorts has arisen from the tribe of Dan, but, but it doesn't actually ever come to pass. In verse 19, we read, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Again, this is a play on words that's sort of lost to us in English, but the name Gad sounds an awful like, a lot like the Hebrew word for raid or raider. 
And in fact, the, the tribe of Gad's eventual allotment in the land will place it in a place where they're often in conflict with would-be invaders. In verse 20, we read this, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Probably pointing to the fact that Asher's land would be very fertile. They were known particularly for their production of olives. In verse 21, we read, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. I don't have a lot for you there. Uh, seems positive, I guess. Uh, Naphtali's land was full of natural resources, so some commentators suggest that that's what's being spoken of, but uh, it seems like a bit of a stretch to me. And down in verse 27, we read the final one. Uh, it says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Uh, it might seem negative. It does actually seem like it's pointing to Benjamin's reputation for being mighty warriors. But those sort of seven quick blessings leave us with just five sons. So there's sort of seven brief ones that we just walked through. And, and, and five sons get a sort of longer treatment. Three of those five are negative. Two are positive. There in verses three to four, Jacob explains why Reuben, the firstborn, is being cut out of the place of prominence in the family. We read there in verses three to four, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. If you remember back in Genesis 35, we read a brief note that Reuben had gone up and slept with his father's wife. And we're not told why, whether that was a sort of power move to demonstrate his position at the head of the family or whether he was motivated by simple lust. We're not told, but here at the end of his life, Jacob makes it very clear that he, he knew exactly what had happened and that he didn't look kindly upon it. You can see Jacob's rage Reuben should have been his might and his glory. This is his oldest son. But instead, he was unstable as water. He turns there at the end of verse 4 and, and speaks to the older brothers to explain why Reuben's not going up to be the head of the family. He said, he went up to my couch. There in verses 5 to 7, we see Simeon and Levi addressed together. We read there, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Jacob's referring, of course, if you were here, to the slaughter of the Shechemites back in chapter 34. These two brothers avenged the mistreatment of their sister by murdering an entire city full of people. And so here, Jacob distances himself from their anger. He, he curses their rage. And he says that they'll be scattered in Israel as a result, perhaps so that they can't bring destruction on the nation. And in fact, this is what we see happens. The, the Levites receive 48 cities that are spread throughout the entire nation. And the Simeonites leave, receive land, but their land is actually within the territory of Judah. And so as a result, their, their cruel anger that 
that characterized their founding fathers couldn't coalesce. It wouldn't allow them to dominate their brothers. Then we get to the positives. Skipping down to verse 22, we read about Joseph. And no surprise, but it's overwhelmingly positive. Joseph, we read there, is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty. Beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Well, this is the longest of all the blessings. It seems to reflect the fact that Joseph was the one chosen by God to save his family. It picks up many of the themes of Joseph's life, including his steadfastness under attack, the fact that his success came not from his own cleverness, but from God's blessing on his life. And of course, Joseph's blessing will be carried through his sons, through Manasseh and particularly Ephraim. So Ephraim means twice fruitful. And so there's a play on words there with verse 22 where uh, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow. That word gets repeated twice. It would immediately make you think of Ephraim's name. The image there of a, of a bow by a spring reminds us of Psalm 1, where the man who delights in the, the law of the Lord is compared to a tree planted by streams of water who can endure the day of trial. There in verses 8 to 12, we see the blessing on Judah. And this is where we'll conclude because this is, I think, the most important and the most significant of all of Jacob's blessings. We've seen that Joseph and Judah are the two heroes of the last section of the bit of Genesis, of this bit of Genesis. And, and after the incident in chapter 39 with Judah and Tamar, we really wouldn't have seen this coming. But as we saw last week, it seems like there's been a genuine conversion, a genuine change in the character of Judah. And as we go through the rest of the Bible, it seems that it's people from Judah and Joseph, that is from the tribe of Ephraim, who seem to take the lead amongst God's people. But let's look at what Jacob says there, starting in verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his fold to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, so the picture here is that Judah's line will be characterized by kings, by rule, by authority. The most immediate fulfillment, it seems, of this oracle is when King David ascends the throne, some maybe seven, eight hundred years later. The previous king, Saul, who was a disaster, as we mentioned, was from the tribe of Benjamin. But when David 
part of the tribe of Judah took the throne, the throne of the nation was firmly established. The tribe of Judah remained on the throne from that point forward. But Jacob's words, I think, push us forward past even David's day. They, they seem to speak of a, of a longer lasting, more permanent fulfillment than even the sort of golden age of Israel in the time of King David. They, they seem to actually push us forward all the way to the very end of the Bible. Because what we see is that they are and ultimately will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. We see that in Revelation 5, in the last book of the Bible, where John, our author, sees a scene in heaven. In Revelation 5, he sees a scroll. And this scroll is sealed. It contains God's plans for the future of the world, for the, the consummation of his people's salvation, for the, for the bringing of justice and righteousness to the world. So we read there in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, Revelation 5 is showing us that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy that Jacob makes about Judah. If Judah is the lionist tribe of all the tribes, Revelation 5 is saying, telling us that Jesus is the lion of the lion tribe. The whole book of Revelation shows him enthroned, on the praises of his people, just as Jacob said Judah would be. Revelation shows us Jesus as a conquering king, subduing the enemies of God and giving justice to the wicked. His hand, as verse 8 of Jacob's prophecy there in chapter 49 reminds us, Jesus' hand is shown all through the book of Revelation on the neck of his enemies. The scepter will not depart from him. Jacob says, and as the loud voices declare from heaven in Revelation 11, he will reign forever and ever. The end of Jacob's prophecy speaks of a great day of flourishing, when Judah's line will be characterized by such abundance that they will use choice grape vines to tie up their animals. You'd be like in our day saying something like using gold chains to tie up your animals. There's such abundance, such prosperity that, that even the most precious thing is, is common enough that you could use it to tie up an animal. They'll wash their clothes, not in water, but in the finest wine. They'll brush their teeth with the best milk. It's a picture of the great paradise of the Messiah's kingdom. When Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, returns and he brings his rule to pass. The imagery there in the book of Revelation is that there will be joy and abundance and delight like we see here in Jacob's prophecy in chapter 49. 
And friends, that actually leads us perfectly into our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because it is in the Supper that we anticipate that day when we join in the Feast of Heaven. When we'll be gathered around the table with the Lord, feasting in a world made new. The bread and the wine set before us, and the fellowship and the love that we have for one another, they point us forward to that coming day. They're meant to whet our appetite for that greater feast of love and celebration. But there is, in the supper, a surprise. Remember that Jacob's faith shows an understanding that God's salvation comes about in ways that we might not expect, even as Jacob blesses the younger over the older. And so in Revelation 5, as we see the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy over Judah, of the lion of the tribe of Judah, we see that there's a surprise. Remember, John hears of this great lion who is worthy to open the scroll and to bring to pass all of God's plans for salvation and justice on earth. And then he turns and he looks at this lion. And here's what he sees in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a mighty lion standing. No. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, <coughs> each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed from people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, friends, the ultimate surprise, the Lion of Judah, the great ruler who will conquer the enemies of God, who will establish God's kingdom and receive the praises of God's people for all time. The great lion of Judah is the lamb who was slain, slain for his people's sin. He is the one who receives all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, but not in the way you might expect the eternal king was manifest amongst us in his loving sacrifice on the cross. And friends, that's what we celebrate at the Lord's table, that we are invited to join in this feast of heaven because the king who invites us laid down his life for us. We come to worship the lion who is the lamb who was slain. And friends, we don't come to the table on the basis of our own goodness. We don't come forward to receive the bread and the wine on the basis of how well we've performed this week, 
how moral we've been, how pleasing to God our actions have been. No, friends, we come in faith that we are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Now, a couple of things before we celebrate. If you're not a member of this church, but if you are a baptized member of another church, and that church believes the same gospel that you've heard here this morning, then you're welcome to join us at the table as a sign of the great unity we have with everyone who loves the Lord Jesus and his gospel. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're not a baptized member of a a gospel church, then first of all, you're really welcome here. We're really glad that you're here with us. Thank you for spending your morning with us. But, but we'd encourage you, instead of coming forward, because ultimately this would be a celebration of something that's not yet true of you, instead of coming forward, use this time to contemplate the grace and the salvation that are held out to you in the death of the Lord Jesus. If you have questions about whether or not you ought to participate, the, the second page of the bulletin has some more instructions for you. You can look there. But we want to begin our uh, celebration together in accordance with the Apostle Paul's instructions to, by taking time to examine ourselves. And we want to come to the table having examined ourselves. And so we're going to take a moment for silent examination, silent confession, and then I'll lead us in a corporate confession of sin. So let's pray together.